This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, it's an extra special edition of Masters in Business. It's our shelter-in-place version of Good Friday. What we thought might be interesting to do was to reach out to a number of people in a variety of different fields and see if we could have a conversation about how the pandemic is affecting them and their business. So we spoke to a number of people, a real estate attorney, a meat purveyor, an economist, a variety of folks who all explained how life has changed under the shelter-in-place provisions. Some of the things we talked about were really amazing and unexpected. Everybody is doing what they can to get by. Everybody is trying their best to get through what is obviously a difficult situation, and there is a lot of ingenuity and a lot of creativity and a lot of people working to keep the gears of commerce moving, to keep food and essential services flowing. I think you'll find some of this quite fascinating. Some of it is very amusing. So with no further ado, our special shelter in place, Masters in Business. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to a special shelter-in-place Good Friday edition of Masters in Business. We thought, given the circumstances of everybody being forced to work from home, if you're not in the medical field or providing some other essential services, fire, police, grocery, what have you, uh, everybody is trying their best to adapt to these circumstances. And I thought it might be interesting to talk to some people and find out how they are adjusting to these current rules. And so my first guest today is Daniel Gershberg. He is a real estate attorney at Romer DeBas, working in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Daniel Gershberg, normally I would say welcome to Bloomberg, but welcome to wherever you are sheltering in place. Yes, thank you so much for for the distraction, Barry, and thank you for having me. (laughs) So, So Daniel, tell us a little bit about your practice under normal circumstances? So under under a good month uh, or a good day, I primarily practice in uh, real estate, transactional real estate, someone buys, someone sells, and also consumer bankruptcy. So for the most part over the last, I'd say five or six years, the majority of that was obviously devoted to, to real estate. The market um, was doing incredibly well. Uh, and so, you know, I would be involved in closing transactions. Someone's buying a place. I'd be at the closing or negotiating contract. I'd have, for instance, a desk and computers and a working phone system. And I'd plod through those things um, with brokers, do normal, normal things during the day. So were you, you live in Brooklyn. Were you going into Manhattan on some days, most days, all days? I had my own firm for about 12 years before I merged with Romer DeVos a couple of years back, and I was working very close to home uh, in Brooklyn. Many of my clients are based in Brooklyn, and so I didn't want to commute. Uh, And so I had an office in Brooklyn. About a year or so ago, I began um, going into the main office on Madison Avenue. And for the past year or so, I'd say four out of every five days, um, I'd be in the city uh, working from that office space itself. And Brooklyn was was a bit of an afterthought. I, um, I've lived now for about three to four years in Williamsburg, Brooklyn as well. So uh, I live in and work there and breathe there. So Williamsburg is a very hot neighborhood in Brooklyn for people who are not familiar with it. A lot of condos and co-ops. Prices have gone up. A ton of transactions have been taking place there until I'm going to guess about a month ago. How has the practice of real estate law changed in this current environment? You know, I was practicing um, during 2008 where the market just fell. Um, the market has essentially just stopped. And any deals that were in contract, and again, this is anecdotal. You can speak to other attorneys. Maybe they have a, a different feel for it. But any deals that are in contract, literally just time stop. Um, people are near going through the contracts themselves or they're taking a pause. They're renegotiating the prices. Um, and deals that are currently in contract, you know, when I represent a seller, the sellers are calling me and I, I'm having more Zoom calls than I ever want to have in my entire life where the sellers are calling me and saying, how do we make this deal happen? And on the flip side, my buyers are calling me and saying, how do I get out of this thing? And really? so real estate just, yeah, on, on a sort of a larger level, 
uh, Brooklyn-wide and, and again across New York City as well, we're in this sort of uncharted territory right now where, um, frankly, there aren't any easy answers. Uh, so people are trying to get out of deals, and, and that's where I'd say 90% of my day is uh, right now is in navigating the ability for someone to either get a better price or get out of a deal or on the seller side to stay in the deal itself. So let's talk about the other aspect of your practice, which is Chapter 7 and 13 bankruptcy filings to discharge consumer debt. I'm going to ask you to I'm going to ask you to look forward and imagine that this goes on for 2, 4, 8 weeks longer before things normalize. What happens in the consumer realm with people carrying credit card debt and auto loans and perhaps even mortgage debt if they lose some or all of their income, either temporarily or permanent? What What is the I'm, consumer debt world looking like three months from now? I'm going to go out on a limb, and uh, as my wife often reminds me, I'm, I'm wrong most of the time. <laughs> I will say that I think Congress has to deal with this in a particular way because I think that um, you're looking at a deluge of cases that the courts may not be able to handle. So bankruptcy, to a certain extent, is trailing. You don't file for bankruptcy as the first thing you do. You file for bankruptcy as the last thing you do. You pay your credit card minimums. You try your best to negotiate with your creditors. You do everything you can because there's a stigma attached. So people won't be filing two months from now or three months from now. Remember, there's, in New York, there's a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures uh, for right. at least three months. So people are going to sort of stay in place, right? No one's going to be thinking this way. I think what you'll see is if this continues for, let's say, three, four, five months, then you begin to see people filing because, frankly, they won't have incomes. Um, they won't be able to make and, – and remember, again, 08 was, was about people not being able to make their mortgage payments. Now you have people that can't make their rent, and you, you're bringing in this other section uh, of the workforce in that wasn't there before. You're going to have a large number of cases. You're going to have people that are living off of credit cards for a period of time. You're going to have people that – are taking personal loans, are cashing out their 401ks, or getting 401k loans to the extent that they can. And then once all of that stops and they can't take any more credit out from anywhere else, only then do they come to have this sort of come to Jesus moment where they say, oh my God, I think I have to file for bankruptcy, right? And so I would say trailing, you're looking at rather than three months, you're looking at six to seven months from now. But I think you're gonna have an enormous number of cases. And, and I say this, I know it sounds ridiculous, because, you know, obviously in self-interest, more clients is, is, is more money that comes in. I don't even want this. Um, it, you, you hear these stories sometimes of these people, and, and 0809 really changed me in a lot of respects. Um, I would rather people not file and, and, and there would sort of be a way out because the emotional toll that this takes on people um, is underappreciated uh, when it comes to a lot of this stuff. So I think if you see anything, it's going to be, again, half a year from now, but I'm hoping that Congress sort of brings some relief even within the laws themselves. Let's talk a little bit about life in a Brooklyn apartment. I'm assuming you're not on a uh, a 3,000 square foot giant apartment. You're in a fairly normal Williamsburg um, apartment. Are you in a condo or a co-op? Yes. Uh, so I'm in a condo. I'm a renter in a condo. And by fairly normal, just to give your audience some idea as to why it's ridiculous to live in the city. Um, I am uh, an 1,100 square foot, which is big uh, for the purposes of New York, and a garage for the rest of the country, square foot right. apartment um, with my wife, uh, my almost three-year-old son, and uh, a newborn daughter, which, again, really, really great life choices that I made prior to a pandemic, as well as a 70-pound English bulldog. Um, so I try my best to leave uh, that apartment as much as I can and work out of my car uh, downstairs. <laughs> And Is so that true? You're sitting in your car? No, I kid you not. My, my office, I have no problem deducting anything uh, regarding my car and my taxes this year. My car, uh, I have a Nissan Pathfinder that I, that, I, that I got this year. I leased it. And I work six hours a day out of this vehicle because to try and get anything done in what is basically an insane asylum upstairs is impossible. <laughs> I have one area of that apartment, which is my wife's closet. Um, that I work out of sometimes, and I will literally put a laptop on a footstool and close the door so there's no light anywhere there because if there's light, my son will, will rip the door open. So I, I'm two minutes away from a quill pen and a candle 
Um, so most of the stuff that, that I do is, is running downstairs, taking calls, um, doing Zooms again, um, and sending emails out from, from my car. Is that is where, where we're speaking where. to you right now, from your Nissan Pathfinder? I'm, I am in my Nissan Pathfinder as we speak, as, as I like Wh- to say, in my remote office. <laughs> Which seat are you in? I'm trying to picture this. I So I'm in the driver's seat because, God forbid, the cops were to pull up if I'm double parked or by a hydrant. I would be able to, to move and continue my Zoom call. I would switch to audio only or I would stop the video itself. Um, occasionally, when I need the laptop, I will go to the back seat. The Pathfinder is wonderful in that there's, there's a three-row capacity here. Um, so I can basically go to the third row to take a nap if I need to. I haven't done that as of yet, Barry, but this is, <laughs> this is where my career has taken me. So, so I lived in the city for a long time. I lived on Lex and, and 28th Street, and I remember what a pain it was dealing with parking. But I have to imagine that the New York City Traffic Enforcement Division, in the midst of a pandemic of which New York State is a hotspot and New York City is the hottest hotspot within New York State, have eased up on that sort of stuff. Are, are you telling me? Alternate side of the street parking is still in effect? No, we're good. I'm just neurotic. And I, I don't want to take it even through a pandemic itself. It has nothing. No one wants to get close to anyone, Barry. So I, I, I see that I'm person with, with a mask facing me. Yeah. So I'm just, it's just me being neurotic. All right. So you're sitting in your uh, front seat of the Pathfinder. Uh-huh. You Tell me a little uh-huh. bit about the technology you use to do your job. What, what are you working with and how are you communicating with clients and others? The vari- so it's a variety of sort of things, but obviously I'm taking calls on my iPhone. I'm Zooming, uh, doing Zoom calls, which has become this, this new thing with, uh, with my iPhone as well. Uh, most of my files are, of course, saved on Dropbox, so I have access to those as well. Look, I've been remote and virtual for, for a number of years prior to that, just because, of, again, going from Brooklyn to the city and, and having two offices. So it hasn't really been that bad. The problem is you can't get a lot of work done um, in the car itself, when you have to send emails out, I literally go up to the apartment um, when I know my, my son is either taking a nap or my wife has him in a different room. And I will hyper-focus on sending an hour's worth of email out um, in that closet. I mentioned that I have a newborn as well. So at some ungodly hour of, let's say, 3.30 in the morning when, when my daughter is up, I'm also, um, as, I'm, as I'm feeding her, um, sending out emails from the living room itself. So I leverage as much as anyone can at this point, my MacBook, my iPhone and everything else, just to, again, this is, you know, I'm not thriving just to survive. And I think what you're really seeing, to be honest with you, uh, and maybe it's a left turn to a certain extent is uh, every lawyer is dealing with the same thing or every person I'm dealing with is dealing with the same thing. Right. That famous skit where the guy's giving an interview and his two kids run in behind him. That's just, that's just everyone these days. So you don't feel weird about it. Uh, you don't feel weird about someone showing up with a sweatshirt uh, on, uh, on a video on Zoom because you know that they're going through the same uh, hell that you're going through on a daily basis, right. which that, is good that, and that, which, which makes us palatable. That was a BBC broadcaster whose son came running into the room during a broadcast. He subsequently brought the whole family in during the, the lockdown, and nobody, <laughs> even, and nobody even thought twice about it. So, so if you're reality. using... You're using a laptop in the car. Uh, are you using any mm-hmm. sort of uh, jetpack or, or Wi-Fi connection to the laptop, or are you just using your iPhone as a, uh, as a connection? Or do you not need that? You just use the iPhone for the, the Zoom conferences, and you could deal with the laptop when you get back up to the, uh, to the apartment. I try my best to, to separate those two things because the, the second I do – listen – my life resembles that of Larry David quite often. So the last thing I need to do is try and connect a hotspot and I'm connected to someone else's Wi-Fi and now there's viruses. I try my go. best to, to separate and do the iPhone thing. I have brought the laptop down, used it as a hotspot. You know, sometimes it's better than others. Sometimes emails are, unfortunately, go out very quickly. Um, but I try and, and make it so that if I need to send out emails, I'm running upstairs to, can't believe I'm saying this on the radio interview, to my wife's closet and um, the rest of the time I'm in my car uh, doing calls and everything else on my iPhone and Zoom on my iPhone itself. So so I'm picturing a street in Williamsburg with all these uh, uh-huh. high-rise condos and rows Correct. of cars parked. Are you the only person sitting in your car or do you see dozens of other people operating similarly? I am, I am probably the only person 
sitting in their car. Half of this neighborhood has fled um, to God knows where, to, to second homes that I don't have, to their parents' place. And, and my mother lives in Miami. My wife's parents live in Europe, so we don't, we don't have that option. Um, so there's no one in any cars, really, other than me. Um, I see sometimes the same cops going around and the same sort of people going around and, and walking their dogs and everything else. There's, there's really not a lot of traffic in the street itself. So if you want to picture it, it's, it's really just me running a vehicle uh, in, inside a vehicle itself, uh, doing Zoom calls, sometimes with the windows open when, when the, the weather actually allows me. Thank you, Daniel Gershberg of Roma DeBoss, real estate and bankruptcy attorney. My next guest on our special Good Friday edition of Shelter in Place, Masters in Business is a former MIB guest, Joe Davis. He is the chief economist and investment giant Vanguard. And I was surprised to learn that he is considered essential personnel during a pandemic. Joe Davis, are you not sheltering at home? Are you actually in the Vanguard office? Uh Hi, Barry. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am, although we, uh, you know, for, for some time we've taken, um, uh, you know, pretty, pretty significant steps. Uh, I'm, I'm the only one uh, on my floor here uh, in the building uh, that I work at, um, you know, because I'm a part of the investment management group. Um, there's just very select personnel that um, may be either in the building or in, in what we call hot sites. So it's, um, in one sense, even though I'm I'm in the office, uh, I'm actually alone. So it's uh, and you know, sequestered in my office where I can close the door. So it's still a, it's pretty much an isolated uh, environment. Any meetings that we're having clearly are are video, um, even for certain crew that may be uh, on campus, which is you know fairly few. So so let me paint a little bit of a picture for those people who have never made it to the enormous campus that Vanguard has uh, in Malvern, Pennsylvania. It, it is like a college campus with lots of three-story brick buildings and here's a conference center and there's an auditorium over there and here's a parking garage. And it goes on for, it feels like thousands of acres. I don't know if I'm overstating it, but it's like a giant 25,000 student campus. And when I've been there many times, when you're there, there are cars coming and going and people walking around and offices filled with people and um, various conference rooms and public facilities. It's a small city kind of in the woods of Pennsylvania. Is, is that a fair description? Yeah, Barry, it is. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a beautiful campus. We're in the suburbs, about a half hour from uh, Philadelphia Airport. So, so – Given that this is normally a bustling city, how different is it today when you walk in? Is it like a weekend? Is it how do you compare what you're experiencing today compared to the normal day-to-day -day operations of Vanguard? Yeah, I mean, I think it's for uh, you know for for for, for I would imagine it feels similar to uh, others. Uh, in other industries, maybe around the country, um, you know, you, 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 at best, it feels like a weekend. Although I, I can see the highway from uh, from my building, um, and you know, very little traffic. Um, so even that seems uh, really out of place, um, you know. But I, I think for you know, if I I I, I uh, lead a group of roughly. 65 uh, employees around the world. Um, I think the, the, what, what we're fortunate is that we can do uh, our jobs uh, pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, we have wonderful technology. Um, we're continuing to operate uh, day to day as if, as best you can, as if uh, you know we didn't have this um, you know unfortunate health crisis. Um, but you, you try to, you know, I think I think many of my team, it's just trying to balance uh, what goes on in your personal life. Uh, with your work life even more so because you're you're often you know at home uh, trying to navigate you know those those two uh, you know those two worlds you know I'm, I'm isolated here um, so again e even if uh, have meeting with someone else who may be in a different building which again are few and or they're or they're at home uh, we're just operating on Microsoft Teams and um, it's been a it's been a real benefit. Um, you know, you get out some of the cadence, um, you know, some of your habits, um, but uh, it's, I've actually been 
pleasantly surprised um, how productive you can be. Um, you know, if you have access to to really good technology and to the you know the information you need to do to do your job. You're telling me that a constant stream of people walking into your office to interrupt you with questions or issues or things somehow reduces your productivity? Is is that what the normal <laughs> uh, the normal workflow is is like? Yeah. Well, I tell you, you know, what, the, what has been challenging is just keeping up uh, with just the the rapidity of events. And again, we we've been watching the un, the unfolding of this of this unfortunate health crisis, um, you know, since since uh, December 30th. And I recall that in China because I recall that because it was my birthday. And um, mm-hmm. you know, we we've been you know using alternative data sources for years, and particularly applied them in this situation. And it's um, you know, I'm spending just as much time uh, thinking about, um, you know, what potential additional solutions we may need in the United States from a policy perspective, um, you know, in, in terms of a public service as much as I am importantly thinking about the economic conditions and, and what that may mean for the markets uh, over the coming months uh, and years. So uh, spending a lot of time uh, with that with some of my colleagues at Vanguard, you know, to try to help policymakers because I, because I think we're going to need uh, additional firepower uh, applied to the situation. Joe, let's talk a little bit about the impact so far of the coronavirus. We saw the initial unemployment claims two weeks ago at about 4 million new job uh, losses. This past week, it was 6 million. God knows what we're going to get the week of April 5th. Already 10 million job losses. That's more than we lost in the entire financial crisis of 0809. How significant is the labor market damage to date? Well, it's it is pretty significant, Barry, and we're not. I don't think we're we're, we're I don't think we've seen uh, the worst of it uh, necessarily, which is unfortunate. Um, and I really, my heart goes out. In fact, I, I have uh, family uh, and friends who have who've had to go on unemployment uh, insurance. So it's. Um, I mean, it's 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 one of the it's it's certainly we were projecting over over a month ago, and yet we've had to revise our estimates. Um, it's the worst single quarter in terms of a, a rate of a change, a deterioration in the labor market that, that I think is ever on record. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, it, it may not be we may not get to unemployment rates that, are, that were as high as the Great Depression, although that played out over you know three or four years. This is playing out in a matter of weeks and months, and so it, it's been a significant. Uh, reversal in conditions. Again, it gets back to this. There's just a vacuum of cash flows for many businesses across the entire economy, and um, which which is why it's important to to really try to arrest uh, that. But it's it's um, you know it's most sectors are are impacted, and it's so it's broad based, it's significant, and it's been fast. And um, you know we we will we are expecting. At least five million uh, additional job losses uh, just from the just from the jobs report um, over the next month. Um, I think we're seeing, you know, additionally we are seeing uh, claims um, elevated a little bit. Um, I, I don't mean to dismiss them, but they are elevated a little bit because the CARES Act uh, makes unemployment benefits a little bit more generous and has changed some of the criteria by which you can qualify for unemployment insurance. It can be very positive from a, from a, for those that have been affected, right, in terms of their job, um, but that is leading to even additional uh, increase in claims over and above just those losing their job. So it's, um, but it's, I mean, it's, uh, I, I didn't think I might, I would be in a place in my career where I'm projecting GDP declines as, as large as we are and job uh, losses as high as they are, and yet worrying that perhaps uh, we don't, they're, perhaps they're actually too optimistic. Hmm. So I know most economic data comes out with a bit of a lag. You're always looking backwards at what just occurred, but I keep hearing anecdotally that people who have been trying to file claims for unemployment. They can't get through on the phones. The website's crashing. I'm curious, how accurate is the data as to the true state of the 
labor market damage, are things worse than the official data states? Or, or is it possible that we're just not keeping up with all of the new uh, job losses? Well, I, I think it is. I mean, again, we're going to have a lag. There's no doubt about that, Barry. But we're trying to triangulate. When you triangulate on, I think, more real-time data, uh, we were doing this in China and, and doing it for Europe as well as the United States. When you look at, I don't know, the usage of, of, of credit cards, when you look at Google searches of, of certain keywords, uh, we were tracking that over a month ago. We started with airline cancellations, and now you look about uh, unemployment uh, search activity. Uh, it, it tends to correspond... Uh, you know, with our economic outlook, which is, which is really calling for a significant fall, um, not only for this past quarter, which just ended, but for the, but for the second quarter. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, when you, when you look at a distillation of, of information and uh, as well as some more high frequency uh, data, I, I think it, I think it's generally consistent with the headlines, which are not, you know, which are concerning. Um, you know, I, I think though, I, I will tell you is that we, we do see as our baseline, um, condition stabilizing and then modestly approving as we get to uh, the back half of the year. Now that rests largely on the big assumption, um, which which we still have as as our most likely outcome, that at some point this year, these needs for shelter in place um, uh, dissipate over time. Uh, but that's really the key variable. Is really uh, is is the health variable more so than the economic one? Let me ask you a. A uh, more speculative question that, that requires you to uh, use a little bit of your imagination. This has obviously been a wrenching and unprecedented experience for everybody who's been involved. What sort of lasting changes are going to come to the economy, how business is conducted? Just look across the board, uh, service sector, real estate, labor, how has the world changed on a permanent basis by the coronavirus? Well, it's a really good question, Barry. I, you know, I think when I when I study uh, world history, uh, what at least what I've learned is that when there's profound shocks and crises, um, they could be war. There's certainly economic shocks, and this clearly qualifies. It usually does two things. One is it, it accelerates a trend that was already in place before the shock began. Um, and then secondly, um, there are uh, typically, I'll call them social or political reactions to very shock itself. So let's take the first one. I mean, I think things that we were already seeing, uh, you've talked about and documented uh, a, a number of times, I think um, both the need for, um, I think, a revisit of some aspects of the global supply chain uh, will be in order. And I think we may, we may see more serious conversations of that from a risk perspective, um, meaning, you know, these shocks uh, may occur every so often. And so from, and we may see more supply chain uh, changes than we did uh, from the trade war. Explain that a moment. How might the supply chain shift? Are you referring to the just-in-time delivery system? Yep, or, or yep, yep. I think I think so. I mean, you know, you know, it's been it's been hugely. Uh, it's, there's been a number of positive economic benefits of just in time, but it, you know, because when 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 the industrial economy, when the whole broad-based global economy runs so lean, for lack of a better word. There is a risk to that. The risk to that is you don't have capacity in the system, or um, and we've seen these shocks before, but they weren't of the same magnitude. I mean, you can go back to the unfortunate, you know, earthquake uh, in Japan, right, and what that did to parts of the electrical computer industry. So that that I think when you start to say, you know, the trick, you know, if, if you assign a certain probability to these events occurring ever so often, with a very large negative economic loss. You then, if you if you're in the in the in the seat of a chief financial officer or CEO, you may start to you know assign a little bit greater um, you know assets or investment into uh, adding redundancies into the system, right? Than before, it's just from a risk control perspective. Sure. So I think we'll see some of that. In what magnitude, I don't know, but I, I think it's hard to imagine that in my mind that we'll go as lean as possible and just in time as we did before. Because that opens up business on operational risks. The secondly is that I think we'll see a little bit more. Uh, we certainly will see acceleration in automation. But again, this was a something that was already occurring 
Um, I think we'll also see, uh, you know, it'll take some time for some sectors to come back from, a, um, you know, like air travel and, you know, things that really are, are social you know, social interactions of human beings. I, I don't think, though, I think there will be a recovery in business travel. I think there will be a recovery in individuals going out to eat. I mean, I recall 9-11, there was a significant concern over future of air travel. Um, but it will take time. That's where I think the antibody tests and the ability in you and I and all of our human citizens, Barry, to be able to know that if, if I go into, you know, a certain social setting, am I, am I, is my health at risk? Uh, I think when we get greater confidence with that, right, I think we'll eventually see a return uh, to some of those sectors, but it'll take a little bit longer um, and, until, and, until that dissipates. Uh, but the, we will see a recovery in some parts of the economy that are really under duress right now. This is part one of our special edition, Good Friday's Masters in Business, talking to people how they are adapting to the coronavirus and working at home. Our guest today is Pat LaFrieda. He is a third-generation butcher from a family that's been in the meat business for over a century. LaFrieda's meat purveyors supply steaks to many of New York City's high-end restaurants, including Mineta Tavern, Spotted Pig, Union Square Cafe, Blue Smoke, and Market Table. Perhaps most famously, Danny Myers tapped him to help create the unique Shake Shack Burger, which became an immediate hit and is now a global chain, largely attributed to the success of the custom meat blend Pat LaFrieda created. Pat LaFrieda, welcome to a work-from-home edition of Bloomberg. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So your business really developed as a meat supplier to high-end restaurants. Obviously, restaurants are under incredible duress today. What are you hearing from your customers? Well, I'll tell you, the, the, the restaurant industry is, is really, they're struggling. I would say they're, they're split between thinking of closing down completely or reorganizing. Um, but, but the brighter side of the, the other 50, I call it the positive 50 that and many of them I've talked off the ledge, which is get off the couch, improvise. And we've seen so much of that. I, I've seen, I've seen more ingenuity in, 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 in original ideas from restaurants that I, I've ever seen. And, it, you know, sometimes it, it takes, you know, uh, a chaotic time like this to, to, to really get um, people's minds rolling. And, you know, uh, uh, there are so many great examples, but uh, I, I think restaurants that had never thought of anything like curbside delivery before thought that they were above that, but really wanted to do that. So when we talk about high-end restaurants in New York City, they kind of look down upon, uh, you know, a curbside pickup or a takeout um, they actually didn't permit it, and, and this, but they wanted to um, historically. Now this this gives them the chance to to actually take that 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 leap and and to begin that part of of this evolution because that's what this is going to be. Restaurants are going to be different forever. Um, we hope that that there will be some you know return to normalcy, but for any for be for foreseeable future. Things are going to be different. We we already feel it. Um, and when restaurants get to reopen, I think we're going to see the biggest surge and, and rebound in New York City. Um, you know, despite it being the epicenter of the of the coronavirus, um, I disagree. I think it's going to be we'll have more people that have contracted it and have gotten past it. Um, and those are the people, the very people that we, will be the first back to work and the first to feel mo most comfortable in restaurants. But um, huh. to have restaurants think um, like they have now to to create concepts, um, meal kits. Um, again, the the uh, uh, cars pulling up to the restaurant, popping the trunk for orders that were already paid for with a credit card confirming through the window, a closed window, as to who that customer is, what customer that was picking up, uh, and then the someone from the restaurant just putting the food in the trunk of the car and the car driving off 
talk about social distancing, and restaurants are a place, it's New York City's golf course. It's where we do business. It's where we celebrate. It's where we spend time together. Um, but at the same time, 60% of New York City residents got their meals from outside of the home. So when you close that down, I mean, you're closing a major part of not just food supply, but culture. And, you know, how will that culture change in the future? And um, I certainly hope we get back more to a, a personal place where where those meals are, are unique and, and, and meaningful. But I, I really think that's going to take some time. So between now and then, for restaurants to survive, that 50% I was talking about, those uh, restaurants may not be making money right now. And that's really not what it's about. And no one's doing well right now, but it certainly feels better to be operational in some capacity so that when it is time to come back online and, and, and it is time to get the troops back, that that um, it'll be that much easier. And, and that feeling of, of desperation of being on, on a couch um, watching you know, more cable uh, pay-per-view and, and Netflix than you ever thought you'd, you'd want to watch. Um, it, it just is so much more of a, of a life in feeling that, um, you know, yes, it's a virus, it's horrendous, it's taking lives. But you know what? It's not going to take my life. It, it's not going to take all of our lives. And, and we need to fight it by living. We need to fight it by succeeding. That's a great philosophy, Pat. Mm -hmm. When you say 50% of your client base, which tends to be middle to high-end restaurants, how many are still operating today and doing either curbside or takeout um, service uh, in New York and, and in any of the other boroughs? Well, I, that's, I put that number at about 50%. 50% are still closed from the day that the restaurants were asked to close, and, and that's really scary. I mean, that's not just 50% of my business. That's not just 50% of my receivables. Um, you know, that's 50% of our lives. We've built our lives around supplying restaurants. Um, and, and I'll tell you, the, you know, we had to pivot ourselves. We had to change, not our business model, but, but and we were already diversified into supplying retailers and, and, and some, you know, our own home delivery service. But um, we really ramped up our production. Our production has been running six days a week, 12 hours a day. Um, we have not taken a day off from this for, during this entire pandemic because we are an essential part of the food chain. We, we we're essential personnel, so we've been in the fight from the beginning. And, and quite frankly, we like it that way. Um, huh. we, we wouldn't want so, to be forced not to be able to come to work. Pat, I notice on your website that you are now delivering directly to consumers. Tell us about that. It's a sector that was always about 1% or 2% of our annual sales. And now we'll probably account for about 15 or 20%. Wow. Um, and and it, it is really the access. What we saw in the first few weeks of the pandemic when it was actually uh, called such, is that the run on supermarkets was extreme. And what, what none of us want as Americans is panic. I, I think we could all agree upon that. We don't want unnecessary panic. So when you, when you don't own a meat company or a food company and you know, you're online for five hours at a supermarket to find out that they have nothing on the shelves, that will cause panic. And, and, mm -hmm. and the virus cannot break this country. It cannot break our city. So it cannot break these states. It cannot do it. But panic can. And, and that's what we felt. We made a, a, a statement to ourselves among our family and among our team. We need to start to think of how to alleviate this panic. How, we are a bridge to food between, between food and people. And we need to get meat to people. And we are not in, in going to um, tolerate in anyone that we work with. So, and I'll explain how we got others involved to help dis distribute product. But we will not tolerate a price gouge by a penny. It's just, it's not going to happen. It's not who we are. 
this is really to stop panic. And I mean, our lives are, are bridging food with people. And if we were able, if we're able to do that during this, then we would have saved so many more, um, maybe not lives, we, well, maybe lives. I mean, just, we've gotten a lot of that feedback. I mean, we don't like to accept that, but we've just saved so much worry by staying open. So let me ask you a little bit about the supply chain. How is your business adapting? Where are your, what are your suppliers doing when they're making their delivery? How do the logistics work? Is this business as usual or have things really changed radically from the farm to when you ultimately drop off a package of burgers and steaks to a restaurant or somebody's house? Well, I have to say that the meat industry has become uh, one of the uh, the most efficient systems, food systems in the world. And it, it has not been broken. So there's still, you know, people still need to eat regardless if it's coming from a restaurant or a retail market, if it's getting delivered to your house or you're getting curbside delivery, people still need to eat. For most people, they eat meat and, and it's one of the staples they, they their family needs to see on, on that table. So uh, just making sure that our suppliers and our suppliers from out West have been so, I mean, they really still think it's, it's, it's an East coast and, and, and like New York centric problem. And I'm trying to explain you know, what, what's happening here is going to happen there. 181 countries in two months, I, I, I guarantee you would hit all 50 states. Um, but maybe they won't see it at such a, a rate that we're, that we saw it, but we're in constant contact. About 50% of restaurants opened up again for what they are telling me are, are about one third of the sales that they used to have. However, if you speak to a restaurant that's partially open compared to a restaurant that's completely closed, you'll hear a big difference in, 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 in their voices. You'll, you'll know and feel depression uh, for those that haven't opened at all and, 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 and boredom. And you'll hear triumph in those that are going in every day and they know they're losing money, but, but their customers are so happy that, that, that they've stuck it out and that they're providing food. Um, you know, it, it's, it, 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 it's a very strange time, but you know, it, it, it's, you know, things change in time, and we, we all need to adapt to to um, to what's ahead of us. I, I I truly think if we stick to that April thirtieth reopening, I really think New York is going to be one of the cities that bounces back so quickly that we'll be talking for years as to why it was reported internationally. New York was crumbling. I've gotten condolence letters, basically, from friends in other countries. I'm like, I don't know what you guys have heard, but we're okay. The faster we can get through this, the faster we're going to rebound. Let's just talk a little bit more about how your day-to-day work life has changed. You're an essential service provider. Are you still going into the shop? Are you still supervising uh, the distribution of meat to restaurants and homes? Yes, that, that's the one thing about being a part of, um, you know, an, an essential part to the to the meat supply chain, is that you know, as essential personnel, our schedule never changes. Never changed during Hurricane Sandy. Uh, at nine eleven, we were we were very close to the towers, unfortunately, um, to have witnessed the the uh, the tragedy, the, the uh, atrocity. Um, and we were only closed for one day then. So this, we were, we haven't closed at all. And um, actually because of our pivot to, to, to help retailers restock their shelves and that being a more labor intensive process, my produ- production team has been working you know, at full capacity ever since this began. Wow. So in my freezer, I have a couple of Australian uh, racks of lamb uh, that are shrink wrapped from La Frida Meat Distribution. Uh, how are you selling product directly to households? Does everything show up shrink wrapped, or is it like going to a local butcher? 
uh, everything uh, gets delivered vacuumed, but it's 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 vacuumed fresh. It's never been frozen. So our product, and this this is just the way our culture as butchers has has always been. From my grandfather to my dad to me, um, meat's always better fresh. So when we vacuum product, we're, you're actually able to you make the decision if you'd like to freeze your product. Go right ahead and freeze it. It will be good for over a year. Um, if you don't, you, your product would be good in the, refri- in the refrigerator for about 21 days. So you really have meat as fresh as as a restaurant would, would get it, as fresh as a butcher shop would get it. Hey, Pat, tell us a little bit about how you're getting these products directly to consumers. So our product is shipped fresh, and it's got ice gel packs. In, in the in the boxes and, and the boxes are insulated themselves so although we ship overnight uh, that box is good in room temperature I think we've tested it up to five days um, wow. without without it having a, a, the temperature being compromised but um, we we do all the fulfillment here and we work all night long so um, after the virus of chaos, Yes, our home delivery uh, business has really shot up. However, um, you know, so has all retail. So, whereas you know, most of our business, ninety-five percent of our business was supplying restaurants. Right now, about ninety percent of our business is supplying retailers. To include wow. Amazon, to include uh, Shoprite, Fresh Direct, um, uh, and Italy. And 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 just trying to help resupply the retailers so that we can avoid panic in the city uh, and panic in, in, in the tri-state. We just don't want it to happen because there's no reason for it. The food supply chain has not been broken, and, you know, and I'm I'm proof of it right here. Like I just said, we have not closed one day. We've been in production every day. I'm in constant contact with my growers out west. And the um, harvesting facilities, um, again out west, you know, everyone is in 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 food supply has really been uh, has come together, like you see in other parts of in other industries. Our country really, when when it needs to get together and and bind together, it does. So let's talk a little bit about uh, everybody's favorite barbecue item, the hamburger. You have been credited with stoking a giant burger boom in New York City prior to this whole current situation that's taking place. How how much of that is hyperbole and how much of that is, is true? How responsible are you for all of these lovely high-end hamburgers at all of our favorite restaurants in Manhattan? Uh, yeah, I'm guilty as charged. And, I, you know, uh, uh, I'll tell you that that before we began making blends specifically for restaurants, specifically for the cooking equipment that those restaurants had in them, and specifically for the taste buds of the chefs in those restaurants, um, really chopped beef or ground beef was sold uh, in burger form or in bulk by its fat um, percentage. So you saw 80, 20 or 85, 15. We never really used those numbers. Those numbers are really in order to calculate those numbers. If you didn't send that product to a lab, what you're doing is taking imported trimmings and, um, that, that are tested for it's how lean they are. And then adding it with some domestic trimmings and maybe some mechanically deboned beef Making a burger that we've all seen is more gray and flavorless than it is um, a, a, a real steak experience. So my grandfather always said you cannot hide your sins in the choppy machine. So what you put in there is what you're going to get out of there. And, and what he meant was when you use whole muscle only, so full, whole cuts of beef, when you're using a whole chuck, and when you're using the clod, which has the flat iron attached, which has many, many retail cuts in there, you're, you're going to get the flavors of ribeye. You're going to get the flavors of New York Strip. Um, and 
a, a big part of our recipe is to use whole briskets. Briskets have a f- buttery flavor um, from that fat layer that separates the two muscle groups in, in a brisket. A brisket holds up 30% of the weight of an animal. So it's a, it's a real tough, slow cook, uh, slow cooked type of beef. However, when you chop it, it has great flavor and it really holds back a little bit and gives the burger some bite so that you don't have a mushy gray cafeteria burger that we had back in high school. You know, it, it, this is, these burgers come very special. And, and actually how this started, um, my grandfather always made great burger meat. And although we didn't sell to some of the, you know, really fancy restaurants like Les Benas or to the chef de Louvier. Yet during grilling season, they'd stop by our place for their burger meat to grill for burgers because my grandfather had such a, a great reputation for, for that. And you know, that, that, that really carried through. So all of the disciples, so all of the chefs that respond from, from that group when they move on to other restaurants, they know, um, and they know where to get. They wanted the best caviar. If they wanted the best burger, they, they know where to go. Let's talk about something that's a little bit blasphemous, and that is the Black Label Burger. How did you ever decide to say, I know, let's take the most expensive cut of dry-aged meat in our refrigerators, and what the heck, let's just grind it up into hamburgers, a lot of people thought that was just blasphemous. Yes. And, you know, as, as I experimented with different blends for different restaurants, according to what they wanted, I had met with a chef that was going to open a restaurant in six months and wanted something very different. And you have to remember, we were on the cusp of the financial bubble. Like it, it burst then. So, in, in the planning stages of, it, you know, it, I guess you could say that the, the financial crash happened during the planning stage of this chef trying to find something special. And I just so happened to have been working on, uh, because of my love of dry aged beef, a portion of the burger having dry aged beef in it, I thought would give a dry aged steak experience with, you know, not as expensive as a steak, but but not as inexpensive as a burger. I was trying to reach somewhere in between, but still have that great uh, dry aged flavor. So that restaurant wound up to be Minetta Tavern, and the chef Riyadh had asked me for a an agreement that we would not sell black label to that specific dry aged blend to anybody else. And we shook hands on it, and he is no longer at Minetta Tavern, but we still hold our promise. We've never given that blend to anyone else. And what was the pushback like to a $26 hamburger in 2010? <laughs> well, no, well, so when the restaurant opened the, in eight, the crash had happened. So ownership and the chefs were really considering not not putting it on the menu. Black label almost did not exist because they thought a $26 hamburger as opposed to the $16 hamburger, which was a, uh, a great burger also. It's a short rib blend. Um, but they figured, okay, let's do it. And they got a little bit, you know, there was a writer or two that, that brought it, it to everyone's attention that, you know, during these times, why is there a $26 hamburger on the menu? Yet they didn't complain about the $90 Cote de Boeuf. So a dry-aged rib steak was $90, but the burger was 27 After one year, um, I remember um, the chef calling me and asking me, Pat, do you know how many black label burgers we sold in year one? I said, yes, yeah, 16500 He's like, but how wow. would you know that? I, mean, I sell you the beef. It's an eight-ounce burger. I know exactly how many pounds uh, because of traceability. We track, you know, every pound 
um, for our USDA guidelines and their own personal traceability. And of the less expensive short rib burger, um, 8000 so, so slightly less than half of the $26 burger. So the $26 so burger much, is is 300 a week is is back in the envelope calculations. That's a lot of burgers. Yep. A lot of burgers. Especially so for let me, um, a steakhouse. So so let's talk about um, some steakhouses and I want to ask you about two specific ones that you're involved with. Tell us a little bit about the Chop House at City Field where the New York Mets play. Well, I had become friends with, you know, the ownership of the Mets. They were big fans of ours as we were of theirs. And um, one day they asked me, they said, Pat, you know, there's one thing that our ballpark does not have, and that's a, uh, a steak sandwich. They, they had asked me if, if it's something that we would consider if we had a steak sandwich in our family. And we did. It, it, it had skirt steak. We had, we had to change that because... Um, you know, skirt steak is my favorite cut of beef, but it's just too, um, I don't want to say tough. It's, it's not tender enough for a sandwich in a ballpark. Now, people would be ripping away at it because they don't know what the uh, attributes of a skirt steak are. So um, he, they asked me to, to come cook our steak sandwich. Uh, and I didn't think that I would be cooking it, I thought that the chefs there would be cooking it, and it wound up to be me, and they loved it. And they, had, they told me that the season would be starting in 12 days, and that I'd be operational in two locations in 12 days. And I'm not one to say no, I did, and um, they're still, to, still today, big hits. And at and, and a ballpark that if you haven't been there, to anyone listening, um, it, it, it's a ballpark in, in which there's no better food in any other large format capacity than at City Field. It, it's a giant <laughs> upgrade. It's a giant upgrade from Shea Stadium, to say the least. But I, since you mentioned ballpark, I have to bring up MSG. You sell Pat Lafrida steak sandwiches. Uh, at the home of the Knicks. In fact, it's really the only reason to go to the Garden these days. What what gave you the idea of saying, hey, here's a venue where we can reach out to the public with a really high-quality food experience at a place that usually sells not necessarily the greatest food? Yes, but unfortunately, that building is under major renovation to, to, to the tone of $1 billion. So our footprint at the garden is, will, will, will be suspended until that construction is finished. Uh, okay. Um, what we did open though, was at, in, in the timeout building in Dumbo, which was a great food hall until it was closed recently, but will reopen when all the restaurants reopen is the same concept on the first floor, on the fifth mm-hmm. floor, um, with an additional concept of the first floor. So we have three locations in one food hall that has 23 concepts. Uh, we're the only uh, concept that has more than, than, than one uh, in, under one roof uh, and, and the most successful So we're really mm-hmm. proud of that. And, and it's amazing as a kid. I'm born and raised in Brooklyn. And as a kid, I wasn't even allowed in that in those areas, and to see how it's changed and, and, and the amount of tourism, people that, that you just you can't even drive down the streets down there on, on the cobblestone. I mean, it's just littered with 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 um, tourists in a very good way. I mean, I don't know how tourists know to go there, but they have found a beautiful place that overlooks New York City at the base of the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge, and, and right there overlooking the water is a gorgeous food hall called Time Out. And we really can't wait till we get back. We really can't wait till we get uh, time in, I should say. Huh. And and that those are epic views over there from, from the Esplanade, looking at the skyline of Manhattan. 
We, we keep hearing that there's going to be another round of stimulus coming out of Washington, D.C. If congressional leaders called you and said, Pat, we're trying to figure out what we need to do for restaurants across the country, what sort of advice would you give them to help ensure the restaurant industry recovers when all this is behind us? That, that really is a great question because even, even with this current loan that, that they are, you know, they're, they're all able to access this uh, SBA loan. But what's the one thing that they can't do with it? They can't pay their meat purveyor. They can't pay their produce purveyor, uh, fish purveyor. So, you know, not being able to pay bills, you see, the whole, the whole system has to work. From, from the restaurant suppliers all the way through, uh, you know, the finished dish. But, but let's just stick with the restaurants for now. Um, they're, they're devastated. They don't know what to do. So when has any um, restaurant, you know, as a whole, when, when, has, when has the country ever forced restaurants to close? Never. Not, not in the history that we know of. I don't even believe it. In 1918, during the Spanish flu, did they close all restaurants? Um, so it's it's a difficult difficult question, and and I want to help the restaurants more than anyone. But where does it end then? Because there are many industries that I don't know an industry that has been you know profitable during this time either. So um, it, it's again. I want to help restaurants. I know that the administration has met with some very um, well-known and, and celebrity chefs to, to get their in, input on, on how to help restaurants, but um, restaurants are in a lot of trouble. And I think that the biggest part of the stimulus bill that helped restaurants in general was to help their employees get unemployment. To me, that was the most important part because again, they'll be whole and now the small business owner is left with a huge chunk of, of, of missing revenue. So yet they have rent, yet they have uh, expenses, yet they have you know, they, they've had no, no incoming money for you know, weeks. And, 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 and as opposed to what the general public thinks, restaurants don't make, large profits at all, if all. So it's a really tough question. At the same time, I'm a realist. This money was not just sitting somewhere on the back shelf ready for a stimulus. We're borrowing this money from foreign countries and and we're going to have to pay it back as a country at, at some point also. So there's got to be some balance in there. I originally the stimulus was a billion, a trillion dollars. Then it went to two trillion with the idea that we may need more. Um, I, I think the idea of asking for non-business related things during that time by, by certain political leaders was just atrocious. Really, we need to worry about the businesses and, and to help restaurants. The administration would really have to, have more of these small business loans that they could loan restaurants. I wouldn't say completely forgivable. I think that when restaurants build back, like any other industry, they would have to pay back these loans. And if they, you know, the interest rates right now are at all time lows. The federal funds rate is an all time low. So if they could you know, have longer term loans, so these loans are two year loans. Well, why not extend that for restaurants? If we're going to take a sector that really needs help, let's loan the restaurant money so that they can get back on their feet with a small um, interest rate and they pay that loan over a 10-year period. I think that would be a great way to help restaurants. And I that's love where that this, idea, this, Pat. Yeah, this thing was started that way, but then it went to two years. It's not... With forgiveness, I, I, I say no forgiveness. I think that the restaurants will be more than happy to have a low interest loan for a longer period of time, and that would really make them sound. Thanks, Pat. We've been speaking to Pat LaFrida of LaFrida Meat Purveyors 
on how restaurants and the food chain is actually being impacted by the coronavirus. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and go to your favorite podcast host, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and you could see any of the previous 300 such conversations we've had over the past five and a half years. Be sure and check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> 